All right, so this morning, we are, we are talking, I'm about to talk about the Bible. I don't know what your relationship is with Jesus this morning, or if you've, uh, you're familiar with the Bible or not, uh, but I want to ask an important question for you. What's your purpose in life? What are you, what are you all about? I'm, I'm the type of person, I really like setting goals, and uh, even just how I do those goals is impacted by what my purpose is in this life. So why are you here on this earth? What are you trying to accomplish? Or put it a little differently, will the earth be a better place at the end of your life? Will you have done something that truly matters? Or will it end when you are done on this earth? Now, I... I would ask maybe if there was anyone here this morning that, that doesn't want to make the world a better place, but if you raised your hand, you might not get a very good response from people. Be like, nah, I don't want to make an impact on the world. I just care just about myself. I don't think there's anyone that wants to make the world a worse place. But for the followers of Jesus, they really wanted a life that had purpose. They followed Jesus around because they saw something in him that they had never seen before. He called them when they were just fishermen, when they were tax collectors, and he said, come and follow me. They saw something in him that they wanted to dedicate their whole lives to. And then he died. And they were shocked. They said, this is the guy we've been following around for three years we left all of our careers behind. We literally walked away from our boats, from our nets, from our lucrative jobs for this. The guy that we put all of our hope in is gone. And so rightly and understandably so, they didn't know what to do. They went and sat in an upper room and they prayed to God and said, what are we supposed to do here? Where are we supposed to go from here and so this may surprise you, but I'm not here this morning to try and convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the fact is that even if you had watched him die and you saw him standing in front of you, you could still disbelieve it. So nothing that I could say or do this morning would convince you if you don't already have a little bit of belief that maybe it's possible. But the fact is that there is more than enough evidence, and it is actually reasonable to believe that Jesus died and rose again. In fact, there's an abundance of evidence, both physical and intellectual and philosophical, to believe in the resurrection. But in the end, faith is about a choice. So you can have enough to, to believe in that choice for it to be reasonable, but God doesn't force your hand. God shows you enough to say, here's the reason why it's enough to believe in me, and now choose. That's the whole beauty of free will, is that God doesn't force us to choose. But the point of the Bible, and this gospel specifically, is not merely just to record history and just have some interesting facts about a man named Jesus. In fact, the whole point of writing this book and this gospel specifically in John, it says in 20, 30 to 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point. It takes belief, it takes hope, and in the end it's your choice. I could stand up, all here, up here this morning all day preventing, showing you all of the evidences, and in the end it would still just be a choice. So our primary passage this morning is John 21 to uh, 23, and it's the narrative account of Jesus uh, rising from the grave in John 20. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the other disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and she wept. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have yet to ascend to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This section of scripture has so many important elements to it. But what I want to highlight this morning is some of the important transitions that take place in this passage. And what our response should be to those. So Jesus offers to upgrade his followers and everyone else from their relationship with being friends to being family. He offers us life where before there was only death. He offers us peace where there had only been fear. He takes our aimless wandering and sends us out in a clear direction. And lastly, he takes our powerlessness and gives us power of the Holy Spirit. So the first transition from friends to family. 
When you first meet someone in a formal setting, often uh, like at a doctor's office or something, you usually talk to somebody with their title. So you say, doctor so-and-so. But perhaps you become friends with your doctor and then maybe it becomes Dr. John and then maybe after a while it's kind of weird to use their title so you just start calling them by their first name. There becomes a familiarity with the person. And so once you get to actually know somebody, you, you call them by their first name. You get to know them personally. They move maybe from friends to family. And so up to this point, Jesus, any time that he would refer to God the Father, he would say, my Father. And in this passage, he changes it. Instead of saying, my Father or the Father, here he refers to God the Father as our Father and our God. So there's no longer a separation between Jesus' disciples and God the Father. Jesus has died and made a way so that they can become truly a part of the family. So the disciples, and each one of us here this morning, are invited into a new paradigm. And that's to move from just being friends of God, somebody who maybe knows about God, to actually being a child of God. So before they had been like estranged children who had ran away from their childhood home, from their relationship with their parents, and maybe they had lost touch with them. And uh, the, the Bible tells us that, that uh, all of humanity is in a state of rebellion outside of Jesus' reconciliation and his love. So what, he says, what it says in Colossians 1.21 is, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Every single person, myself, and every other person here has sinned. That's the fact of the matter. There's no getting around that. But the truth that Jesus offers is you don't have to earn that forgiveness that he offers. It's a gift. He did all of the work that it took to become part of his family. So by dying on the cross, he made a way for us to be a part of his family. So it's a time for the lost to be found, for the runaways to return home and to be restored and forgiven. And faith isn't about doing the right things. It's not about having a checklist of I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. Faith is actually about a relationship. So it's about a person who has demonstrated himself powerful and trustworthy, which is Jesus, and saying that I'm going to put my hope and my faith in them. So the disciples, they had, they had gambled everything on Jesus. And they thought that he had let them down until he rose again from the dead. And then they realized he truly is the Messiah. He truly is the one. And so faith is the decision where a person gains eternal life through the work of Jesus. And I know some of you here this morning could tell the pain that you have felt. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent who has had a child that has ran away from you. Maybe that they have uh, said something or done something that you can't agree with, and there's been tension in your relationship, and how your heart breaks to see them walk away from you and from your close relationship with you. That pain that you feel is yet but an ounce of what God feels. God loves each one of us more than we will possibly ever know 
and he longs to have a relationship with us. It's not about feeling bad. It's not about guilt. It's about the love and the hope that is offered as a part of God's family. And so God wants each one of us here this morning to know and experience and to live in his love. So as a church community, we want to do everything that is possible to show people not the judgment that comes from God, but the love and the hope and the reconciliation that is offered. So for us, this means living our lives in such a way that we are open as possible to people, to remove as many barriers between them and God. In order to do this, we need to experience it ourselves and then to constantly invite others to do the same. So Jesus is offering each one of you here this morning a new life and a new purpose as a member of his family, the family of God. And the next transition that he offers us is to move from death to life. So just as Jesus moved from physical death to physical life, if we are joined with him in faith, that means that we too can move from death to life. Both physical death, when we die, it means that we rise again with him, but also spiritual life in the here and now. Romans 6, 4, 7 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a relationship like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Put simply, if we have faith with Jesus, his work on the cross pays the penalty so that we don't have to. Penalty for sin is death. And that isn't because God wants to smite people. Have you got, has anyone seen uh, Bruce Almighty? There's a... Uh, he says, smite me, almighty smiter. People often think that, well, I have to be good enough to go to church, or maybe I'll be hit with a lightning bolt. Maybe God will judge me. Well, God just isn't in churches. God is everywhere in the world. God is omnipresence. It's a fancy word meaning he's everywhere all at once. But the, the truth is God doesn't want to smite people. God wants to love people. But just like Bruce Almighty, it was, he was in a state of rebelling against God. He just wanted it over. He was angry at God. He wanted it over. But if he just turned to the true God of the Bible, Jesus would offer him forgiveness. Now, there was a, one of the songs that we sang. It's called Death in His Grave. It has uh, these lyrics. There's a couple of verses from it. It says, On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but woke holding keys. To hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. And then it says, he has cheated hell and seated us above the fall. In desperate places, he paid our wages one time, once, and for all. Now worship songs, whether they be old school hymns or newer, more contemporary songs, are theology lived out. Their theology in poetic language. So this is saying on Friday a thief. It's not that Jesus was actually a thief. 
It was that the, the death that he uh, lived, being crucified, he was crucified in between two thieves. So he was uh, in the company of thieves. But Sunday he rose as the victorious king. And he cheated hell. Jesus didn't cheat hell. He actually is the, the king of all the world. But the cheating hell is, hell is a place where you're supposed to go forever. But Jesus conquered sin and death. And the, the worst part about Jesus' crucifixion isn't the physical pain. It's that uh, God the Father actually turned his face away. It's because God can't be in the presence of sin. And Jesus became sin. He took on all of humanity's sin and paid for it so that we can all be forgiven. But just like in any other relationship, you can forgive someone in your heart, but unless they actually come to you and apologize, there can't be reconciliation. And so people think, well, why if, if God, if Jesus paid for everyone's sins on the cross, then why doesn't everyone just get to go to heaven? Well, God has for, is ready and has forgiven everyone's sins if they accept it. God wouldn't force anyone to be in his presence that doesn't want to be in his presence. So he's ready. His arms are open and he's waiting. So the natural result of sin is death. And the, the first bit of John tells us that everything was created in, through Jesus. And in him, he is the source of all life. So here we are in, in the Okanagan. There's vineries. Vine, oh, I can't spa, speak. Uh, vineyards all over the place. So this analogy should work. People should be able to grasp this. But if, uh, if you have a, a branch and you cut it off, is it alive or dead? It's dead. And it may not look dead. Maybe you, you cut it off when there's still clusters of grapes on it. It looks alive, looks like it has life to it, but it's no longer connected to the source of life. So eventually it will wither and die. And so that is what happens with rebellion. If we rebel with, from God, we are no longer connected to the source of life. But there is a hope. The Bible talks again about the very much vineyard language that we can be grafted back in. So you could be cut off and then brought back and reattached to the source of life. And so that's what Jesus offers us when, he, when we ask for forgiveness. And so through a relationship with Jesus, we can transition from death to life and from fear to peace. So three times in this passage or this uh, chapter of the Bible, but two in the ones that I read, Jesus declares, peace be with you. Now, the disciples had been hiding. They had been hiding because the religious authorities in the day had just killed their master. And even though that uh, some of them had boldly promised, like, Peter, I'll die before I'll let them take you, and then he ran away, they, they were scared. They were worried, okay, if they can come for Jesus, who I've seen raise people from the dead, I've seen him heal people miraculously, I've seen him do crazy miracles, if they can kill him, they had every right to be scared. Because they, their leader was gone. And so they were hiding. They were full of fear and uncertainty. But Jesus came into that place and he declared peace. Now, their circumstances didn't change. They were still, uh, they were still probably wanted for dead. But Jesus declares peace. And that peace is available to anyone who is willing to accept it. 
Now, peace doesn't mean the removal of problems. Anyone who's uh, a Christian here this morning could probably testify, stand up and say, yes, I'm a Christian. I've had times where I feel peace, but my life is still hard. I've had times when I've been praying for a situation and God doesn't change it. I say, please, please fix this situation. This terrible thing has happened. Please fix it. And he doesn't fix it. But what he does do is he gives me peace. He helps my heart to be still. And he helps me to realize that, okay, the situation doesn't really matter that much. It'll either get sorted out or not. But you can still feel and experience peace. So earlier in John, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So any, any lack of uh, peace that we may feel is temporary. One of the things that Pastor Neil has said over and over again through this, through this, tri- this trial is that uh, he has field, felt like he's been healed every day. He's felt like he's been healed of fear. He felt, he's felt like God has given him a peace. That no matter what happens, God is in control. And that's amazing. Because the natural thing you would think of is this man has served God faithfully for his whole life, his whole adult life. And where's God now? Why is God allowing this to happen? But we see each day that Neil has the help and the support, and the love, and the peace that he needs. And that's available to each one of us. It doesn't mean that Jesus controls or changes our circumstances, rather, but it means that he helps us have the strength to get through them. So peace is possible in all circumstances, not because uh, Jesus changes them, but because he gives us the peace that we need. So through a relationship with Jesus, we can transition from fear to peace, and then also from being wandering to being sent. So before the disciples met Jesus, they were all fairly aimless. They had careers, they had jobs, but they didn't really feel like they had a purpose in their life. And then they met Jesus, and they had a purpose for three years. They were able to, while they followed him, even themselves perform amazing miracles. And if we see after the, the, this is skipping ahead a little bit in the Bible, but if we see that after Jesus uh, ascended back to heaven and after he rose from the dead, in the book of Acts, we see this, this group of simple fishermen, tax collectors, people that had been nobodies really in the scheme of life, do amazing miracles. They did amazing things. Peter, the one who was so scared that he ran away and denied Peter, or G, uh, Jesus three times, we see on one day he preaches a sermon in front of the whole crowd of Jerusalem and thousands of people put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. That boldness comes because he had a purpose. He realized that the whole point of his life wasn't just to live as many days as possible or just to be happy but to be a person who followed Jesus wherever Jesus wanted him to go. And so Mary, uh, in this Bible, in this uh, passage rather, uh, it's really neat actually because if you were to make up a story about someone rising from the dead in the Middle Eastern times, you would not pick a woman to be the one to testify to that. And that isn't because women are any lesser than men. 
but it's because in Middle Eastern culture during this time, it was a patriarchal society. And so women weren't not only allowed to vote, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. So you could have a hundred women that would watch something happen, and unless there was a man there, their testimony wouldn't mean anything. But God, showing that how much he cares about women and how important they are, had a woman be the first one to witness his resurrection and then go and tell all of his disciples what had happened. So a woman was the first person to preach a sermon about the resurrection. And I think that's awesome. It shows that God cares about women and men. And there are passages in the Bible that say uh, that everyone can be sons of God. And people think that this is, uh, this is just language saying, well, yeah, you know, people used to think men were better. But this was actually speaking into a culture that, once again, was patriarchal. And saying that everyone could become sons of God was elevating women to their rightful place. And so now we would, we would say that women have an equal standing with men. So now we would say we are all called to be sons and daughters of God. But for them, it would have been amazing for a woman to think that she could have been treated like a son. Because it meant she could have had property rights. She could have voted. She could have, had, uh, she could have testified in court. It meant that she was totally equal. And so Mary goes and shares with others what God had spoken to her. So those who are acquainted with the word of Christ themselves, so those who know about Jesus, are told to go and share what they know, whether it be lots or whether it be little. And Jesus walks around with arms wide open and a heart that is ready to receive anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Anyone that obeys Jesus, just in that little video that we watched, the, the whole point of the, the gospel of John is so that people would believe in his name. It's not just about knowing things about Jesus and having all the right knowledge. It's about actually acting on those things. If you have faith, that faith must be active. So being a follower of Jesus is so much more than just going to church. You can go to church every Sunday and hear a sermon and, and sing worship songs. But unless you're actually living out your faith, then it's purposeless. So Jesus teaches us uh, what it means to follow him. He comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. And nothing that we have is for ourselves. It's actually for the sake of others. So the purpose that we have been given much is so that we can share much. And Jesus wants to take your purposeless life and give you a purpose. So maybe you ask the question, what's the meaning of life? And Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would say it's 42, which I'm still trying to figure out what's special about the number 42. No, no science fiction nerds here. Okay, that's okay. It's just me. But uh, the purpose of, oh, there's one, Derek. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for standing up with me. The purpose of life is a big question. Everyone wants to know. Since uh, I have a, my daughter Liberty, and one of her first words, actually her first word was wow, but one of the close seconds was why. We all want to know why. Why are we here? Why am I breathing? Why am I living? Why is the world like this? And this comes down to many things. Why is there suffering? In our hearts, we know there shouldn't be suffering. In our hearts, why is there death? We know there shouldn't be death. There should only be life. 
We're built not for this world. We're actually built for the kingdom of heaven. We're built for a life that is perfect and free of suffering, free of pain. And we all know that in our hearts. But so Jesus gives us a sense. He gives us a purpose. But then he doesn't say, just go and do it on your own strength. Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus transfers us from being powerless to being powerful. So Jesus doesn't just leave them to their own devices. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is Jesus' presence and his power. And just as Spider-Man's uncle, Uncle Ben, says to him, with great power comes great responsibility. I'm I'm pulling out all the the comic nerds now like me. but uh, So Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. And it is a great gift. And the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers, and it is an amazing thing in our own hearts. But it's not just for us. It's for other people. And there's a huge calling in this verse, actually, that uh, I don't want to camp here because I could spend a long, long time here. But it says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, who here feels qualified to go around judging other people and uh, forgiving them their sins or not forgiving their sins? I certainly don't. I know even myself, I'm not perfect enough to judge myself. Because even uh, getting into the trap of comparison, you know, when anytime we compare ourselves, we always compare ourselves to someone that is, that is worse than us. So on the scale of like bad to goodness, we don't want to compare ourselves to Mother Teresa. We want to compare ourselves to Hitler and be like, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I, like I'm, I'm not Hitler. I'm, I'm pretty good. But we don't want to be compared to, to Mother Teresa. But actually, the scale isn't uh, Hitler to Mother Teresa. The scale is actually Jesus or nothing less. And I don't match up to that. I'm just going to admit that right now. But he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us that we have a great responsibility. And the point of this is that the calling is so huge that none of us can possibly do this on our own. None of us are smart enough, strong enough, good enough to do this on our own. That it's only God working in and through us that this is possible. So no one person in this room is better than anyone else. Sorry if you, if you feel like you maybe are. The only difference between people is whether they are following Jesus or not. That can't be earned. That, can't be, uh, that you can't do that good enough. It's only whether or not you live your life in surrender to Jesus. It's about a decision. So Jesus asked them to go out in the power of his Holy Spirit. So I began by asking the question, what is the purpose in your life? What's the purpose in life? What are you doing with your life? Now, much in life outside of Jesus often feels pointless, feels purposeless. It's like filling out paperwork at the, at the insurance place. It's just, where is this going? Just give me insurance. I need this pretend piece of paper so if I hit somebody, it actually does something, apparently. It's just like money. The only reason that money actually has a value is because we all believe it has value. It, it's just a piece of paper. That much of life feels like this. Okay, I do this thing for what purpose? What's the reason? But in contrast, Jesus actually gives us a clear picture of what our lives are to be about. 
He is sending us out because our lives aren't about this earth. Our lives are about the kingdom of heaven. Our lives are actually about eternity. The, the life that we have on this earth isn't meant to be spent on ourselves. It's meant to be spent in the service of others. Just as Jesus lived a life of purpose and he loved other people sacrificially, that is what our lives are supposed to be about. Our lives are supposed to be about loving other people so radically that they can't help but wonder where that love comes from. And it's not our love. It's God's love flowing in and through us. So our lives are about making the world a better place, not just for this time, but for eternity. So while I was watching uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee this week on Netflix, it's awesome, it's hilarious, uh, uh, who here watched Seinfeld, either growing up or, or old episode? Seinfeld, Seinfeld? No judgments, please, anybody? Okay, Seinfeld, I love Seinfeld. Sein- Julie, or uh, this story, uh, this show, oh, I can talk, I really promise. Jerry Seinfeld had Louis Ray, oh, okay, I gotta remember how to say her name, I always say it wrong. Or Julia Louis-Dreyfus, there you go. Uh, on her show, or otherwise known as Eileen from Sign or Elaine. Oh, I'm doing really well this morning. Need coffee here. Thank you. Elaine from Seinfeld. She said that according to her mother, the key to happiness is having something to look forward to. Now, that something could be something big, like a vacation, or it could be even just something small, like you get to go and go shopping or something. But as long as it was something to look forward to, Now, I love finding little things like this because there's so much truth to little statements like this. The key to happiness is actually having something to look forward to. But if you're a believer in Jesus, that something to look forward to isn't just like a vacation. It's eternity spent in heaven. It's it's eternity spent in perfection. It's when all of our tears get wiped away. It's when all of our joy knows no bounds. It's when we can spend eternity with lives of purpose and passion and joy. And this isn't the, uh, the Seinfeld, or not Seinfeld, Simpsons version of heaven where it's little angels with clouds up and doing harps because that would be really boring. I actually think heaven's going to be a place where your imagination knows no bounds, where you can do amazing things physically and where there actually will be work, but it's not just purposeless work. It's work that actually has meaning and a point behind it. So the amazing party that we're going to have in heaven too. You know, it should be that Christians know how to party better than the rest of the world because we have the best party to get ready for. Because in heaven... It says it's going to have the best party of all time. Jesus actually went ahead of us, now 2,000 years, to prepare. So think of how good that party is going to be when we get there. And it's going to be so amazing. Even the, the, the metaphorical language that it uses is gold is worthless because the streets are paved with gold. It's going to be an amazing place where we can go and celebrate and have an awesome time. And so it's a life that we have an opportunity of living purpose with in service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So do you believe in this, Jesus? And have you chose to make him your master? If you would say yes this morning, then walk in obedience to him and live as a sent person. You must use your time, your energy, your passions, and your resources to show others the way to Jesus. So we're to announce in Jesus, uh, in God's name and by his spirit that the kingdom of heaven is coming. It is near. 
there is an urgency to this. You know, it's, we realize that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose from the grave. And so some, maybe we can become complacent and be like, well, you know, I've got, I've, I've got a few more days. I've got a few more years. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. Maybe he's coming back in another 14,000 years. None of us know. But if we live our life waiting until the last moment to put our faith in Jesus, none of us know when that moment is going to come. None of us know if we walk out of this place and get hit by a bus, even though there's not a bus route here. None of us know. None of us know how many days that we have left on this earth. And so there's an urgency here. And for those of us who would say that we do believe in Jesus, then we have an urgency to act, to tell other people of the hope and the faith and the trust that can be found in Jesus alone, the peace that can be found, the reconciliation as a part of his family. So if you would say that you are a Christian, are you living your life in such a way that if I were to follow you around this week, I would have enough evidence to convict you in a court of law of being a Christian? Or is it just that you go to church? Because that's not enough. Does your use of time reflect your relationship with Jesus? Your passion, your energy, your finances? I've asked this before, but what are you doing if you're just coming to church on Sunday? What's the point of life then? What's the point of being a follower of Jesus if it's just about going to church? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I would encourage you to spend some time examining his claims. This book of John and his amazing book of the Bible. Look at who Jesus says he is in his word and seek him out. And the, this is a great place to start in the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible yet, we have, uh, we have uh, New Testaments we'd love to give you. I'm sure if you ask one of the ushers, they'll grab one out of the office for you. But if you came with somebody who's a follower of Jesus this morning and you have questions, ask them. Ask your questions. This should be a place where if we have doubts, if we have questions, this should be the place where you're most welcome to ask them. And if they don't know the answer, because they might not, they'll find out or find out together. It's a great way to grow and to learn. Would you please uh, join me in prayer as we sing and reflect on who Jesus is and what our response to him is going to be? Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Jesus, for the life and the hope and the truth that can be found in you and you alone, Jesus. Jesus, uh, the reality that you rose from the dead is something that uh, maybe we're doubting this morning. Maybe we're thinking, oh, this is a nice story in the Bible. Maybe, uh, maybe it did happen, maybe it didn't, Jesus. But this is actually the, uh, the center point of our entire faith. Paul says that uh, if you didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied most among all people because we're spending our lives in the hope that you truly rose from the grave. Because that's what it's about, Jesus. It's not about this life. It's about the life that is to come. We were made for eternity. We weren't made for this world. And so I pray that you would help us to follow you in truth, Lord. That we would truly believe in who you are, Jesus. Jesus, I pray for those who maybe uh, don't know you yet here this morning. I pray your Holy Spirit would be acting in their lives. I pray that you would be drawing them and that they wouldn't feel judged they wouldn't feel uh, too guilty, Lord, but they, they would feel your love and your presence and your drawing, Jesus. 
Following you isn't about uh, feeling bad or about a checklist of things that we're supposed to do. Following you is about the love that is offered from you. You are asking us to become sons and daughters of you, to be reconciled to the family that we are supposed to be a part of, Jesus. So I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning in the spirit and in truth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.